Just a note, this episode of Left Behind contains depictions of battle and death, including that of animals that may be unsuitable for some audiences. Ed, tired as you are, I'm really sorry to see you get stuck with leading this action. But there isn't much I can do about it since Skinny gave the word. Hell, you heard him. Observed 26-year-old Cavalry Captain Johnny Wheeler to his fellow officer, Lieutenant Ed Ramsey, as they maneuvered their horses down the narrow, dirt road toward their waiting troops. Captain Johnny Wheeler was a mild-mannered, good-looking young man from Minnesota, with a square face framed by brown hair, friendly eyes, and a pleasant smile. The two American officers were leading the U.S. Army's 26th Cavalry's Troop EF along a dirt road that paralleled the northwestern shore of the Badhan Peninsula, heading toward the village of Moran. Lieutenant Ramsey, a 24-year-old Kansas native with brown hair, a narrow face, and a thin mustache shaped like an upside-down V just above his upper lip, had been on patrol in Moran with Troop G. But while the remainder of Troop G withdrew for rest and other assignments, the general was sending Ramsey back to Moran with Troop EF because he knew the landscape. Two columns of around 100 horse-mounted riders stretched along the dusty road, a single-file column on either side, kicking up dust that got into the horsemen's eyes and mouths. It made an already uncomfortable ride worse, in the hot Philippine sun that made them sweat and their helmet liners chafe against their scalps. As they neared the village of Moran, Ramsey stopped the columns at the head of several trails heading left and west from the road. The troop broke into three platoons. Ramsey led 1st platoon, the advance guard, down the center trail. It was almost large enough to be a primitive street and led straight to the Moran village. Platoon 1 went ahead of Platoon 2, which was commanded by Wheeler, and Platoon 3 that was headed by another officer. As Platoon 1 neared the village, Ramsey dispersed his platoon in the foliage along three additional trails that surrounded the small village, pistols drawn. He sent four troopers, including Private Pedro Yuperio, ahead to scout the village. Yuperio and his fellow scouts crept into the village that was made up of a few nipa huts with thatched roofs and walls made from woven bamboo. The huts were on stilts, with fenced animal pens under the huts. By this time, though, most of the animals had been taken by hungry soldiers. The four scouts moved their horses silently between huts toward the old stucco church in the center of the village. Suddenly, Yuperio saw three soldiers in Filipino army uniforms and moved his horse forward to investigate. The soldiers shot at him. He realized that the soldiers were not Filipino, but Japanese. He and his fellows fired back. Yuperio was shot three times, once in the front left shoulder and then two more wounds extending down his chest. There was a fourth bullet in his right arm. Turning quickly, Yuperio and the three other scouts galloped back to Ramsey and the rest of Platoon 1. Japanese bullets chasing after them. Ramsey looked at the bloodied young Private Yuperio, whose reins draped across his almost useless left hand and a gun in his right. The boy's a goner, Ramsey privately thought, then issued his orders out loud. Yuperio, Gonzalez, ride back to Wheeler with an update. Get him here ASAP. We'll hold the Japanese. Then you take cover, at the back, until medics come to get you. Ramsey quickly surveyed the village and surrounding area and realized the Japanese forces in Moran were an advance guard of a larger invasion unit. His platoon was outnumbered, but if there was any chance of holding back the large force and keeping the town, 
he needed to take action, now. Raising his right arm high, he signaled his men into a line of forages. That's the technical term for lining up with all the horses' noses on the same line. The 20 or so men of Platoon 1 quickly obeyed. Hands still high in the air, Ramsey yelled the order. Charge! The entire platoon leapt forward as one, a solid wall of 1,200-pound horses heading for the stunned Japanese troops at full gallop. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Al-Masam, was one of those POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell these stories. This week's story is about the last horse-mounted cavalry charge in U.S. Army history that of the 26th Cavalry Regiment in the village of Moran, today known as Morong. We're going to focus mainly on Captain Johnny Wheeler of the 26th Cavalry Regiment, but you'll also hear about two others, Lieutenant Edwin Ramsey, who actually led the charge, and Private Pedro Yuperio, a young Filipino cavalryman who was a hero in his own right. You'll hear Ed Ramsey's name quite a bit during the charge and ensuing battle, but I'm not going to go into his life very much because there's so much information about him all over the internet. Just type in Edwin Ramsey and you'll have more information than you know what to do with. He published a memoir called Lieutenant Ramsey's War in 1990, which describes his role in the charge, as well as escaping from the Bataan Death March and joining the guerrilla organizations for the rest of the war. I'll eventually get into guerrilla and other underground activities in the Philippines, and they're pretty darn cool, but I'm not going to go into them in this episode with Lieutenant Ramsey. I have some great details about Private Pedro Yuperio's action during the battle, but only a few details about his life. I'll add them in when and where they fit best. Now, you may recall the 26th Cavalry Regiment from Episode 6, which focused on Private Dominador Figuracion and the first Japanese ground landings on Luzon, which is the Philippines' largest island. Private Figuracion participated in this last cavalry charge, although for simplicity's sake today, I'm going to focus on the actions of Wheeler, Ramsey, and Imperio. Otherwise, things get really confusing. So let's jump in with the life of Captain Johnny Wheeler. John Zadok Wheeler was born June 17, 1915 in McLeod, Minnesota to Merritt and Ruth Wheeler. He had a younger sister and younger brother. Johnny's father Merritt was a World War I veteran and worked as a medical doctor, specializing in ear, nose, and eye needs. Johnny grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he attended Central High School in the early 1930s. He played trombone in the school's band and was a member of the Literary Club and the Rifle Club. There's a picture of the Rifle Club in the school's yearbook, with several of the members holding rifles as they pose and some aiming the rifles at a target off-camera. It's something I doubt we'd see in a yearbook today, and you can find those pictures on my website. The link is in the show description. Johnny is often described as mild-mannered, gentle, and gentlemanly. He had a passion for the outdoors. By April 1940, he had graduated from college and was living at home with his parents and siblings. 
I'm not sure when he joined the U.S. Army, but by summer 1941, the 26-year-old was a captain assigned to Troop E in the 26th Cavalry Regiment in the Philippines. The 26th Cavalry was a Philippine scout regiment. It was part of the U.S. Army and made up mainly of native Filipinos. The officers, however, were almost exclusively American. Life in Manila and the Philippines was fantastic for Wheeler and the other young officers in the months before World War II began. They were young, single, and living in paradise. They enjoyed golfing and polo during the day. They already had the horses. At nights, they attended dinner parties, went dancing, and did a little gambling at the fashionable Hialeah and other clubs in Manila. Built in 1940, Manila's Hialeah building was considered the finest art deco building in Asia. Hialeah is a sport that is similar to, but much more fast-paced and violent than racquetball. But Manila's Hialeah building was so much more than a sports complex, boasting a gaming room, four restaurants, four bars, a roof garden, and the best Spanish and Filipino entertainers, Hialeah became a place to see and be seen. And among those who Wheeler and the young American officers saw at the club and other social events were the young Army and Navy nurses stationed at military hospitals in and around Manila. The dashing young Captain Johnny Wheeler was interested in Lieutenant Juanita Redman, a pretty Army nurse with red-brown hair from South Carolina. He had a lot of competition for the charmer with a southern accent, who one source called, quote, beautiful enough to be a movie star, close quote. However, Juanita did seem to return Johnny's notice. But, as we know, the fun and dancing didn't last past December 8, 1941, when the Japanese first attacked the Philippines. Wheeler and the rest of the 26 said goodbye to the pretty nurses and mounted their horses for a grueling ride north, where they would be among the first line of defense against the landing Japanese ground troops on December 22, 1941. I'm not going to go into details of the initial landings in this episode, you can hear those in episode 6 of this podcast. But there is an interesting story told about Captain Wheeler on that invasion day. Wheeler was in command of the 26th Cavalry's Troop E, which was ordered to help hold a road so that the Japanese infantry and tanks couldn't advance. With the 26th were light tanks of the 192nd Tank Battalion. But the defense did not go well, and the entire 26th Cavalry and Tank Battalion were retreating. Wheeler and Troop E were closest to the Japanese advance as the American tanks pulled out. Troop E stayed behind the retreating tanks to cover the rear. Wheeler thought that all the tanks had cleared, but then he noticed two tanks coming down the road. They stopped just short of Wheeler's position. Wheeler was frustrated. How many tanks are coming? He wondered. He and his men needed to get to safety, but had to stay and help cover the retreating tanks, and time was running out the frustrated young captain rode up to the first tank. What the hell's the idea? He demanded. After a moment, someone inside the tank opened the hatch and Wheeler shouted again, What the hell's the idea? Then the crew member's head appeared out of the hatch and he was Japanese. Dumbfounded, Wheeler realized the tank was not American, but the enemy's. He drew his gun and fired at the tank. The tanks and Troop E opened fire on each other. Tank cannons versus men with rifles on horses just seemed slightly unmatched, but somehow Wheeler and his troops were able to escape. Within days, General Douglas MacArthur ordered all U.S. forces on Luzon to withdraw to the Badajan Peninsula. 
Wheeler and the 26th Cavalry was part of the defense unit assigned to protect roads into Bataan so all U.S. forces could get to Bataan. The 26th Cavalry suffered heavy casualties. Troop E and Troop F suffered so many losses that the two troops were combined into one Troop EF, with Captain Wheeler in command. Once on Bataan, the U.S. and Filipino forces sought to hold the Japanese back at the most northern part of the peninsula. And in mid-January 1942, that meant keeping control of the coastal village of Moran to prevent Japanese landings and further ground invasions there. Moran sits on the western coast of the northern Bataan Peninsula, right next to the South China Sea. The town is practically on the beach, it's that close. Let's imagine the town as a square sitting on one of its points. To the town's northwest, so the top left slant of our square on its point, is the mouth of the Batalan River. The town's southwest border, that bottom left slant of our square, is a coastal creek slash swampy area that separates the village from the beach. The eastern side of the village, so the two slants on the right side of our square, were jungle, foliage, and the trail-like streets leading from the village eastward toward the main Bataan coastal road, as best I can piece together. There's a map of the town on my website to help make things clearer. Lieutenant Ed Ramsey was a member of Troop G, which had been patrolling the area around the town. General Jonathan Wainwright, or Skinny as most people called him, ordered Troop G pulled back from the front and Troop EF, under command of Captain Johnny Wheeler, to take Troop G's place. On the morning of January 16, 1942, as the troops were exchanging places, General Wainwright caught sight of Ramsey. Ramsey would later recall that, Only way he would recognize a young first lieutenant was because he saw me at the polo game we'd played the day before. General Wainwright called young Lieutenant Ramsey over to himself. Ramsey, isn't it? Ramsey responded to Wainwright instantly. Yes, sir. You take Troop EF's advance guard into Moran. Captain Wheeler spoke up. Sir, Lieutenant Ramsey has been here on long reconnaissance and only volunteered to stay behind because he knows the terrain better than I do. Couldn't I possibly send someone else to lead the advance party? Never mind that, Wheeler. Ramsey, move out now. Wheeler and Ramsey headed back to the main body of Troop EF. Wheeler looked over to Ramsey. Ed, tired as you are, I'm really sorry to see you get stuck with leading this action. But there isn't much I can do about it since Skinny gave the word. Hell, you heard him. Ramsey waved it off, not worrying too much about staying on duty longer. Wheeler gathered Troop EF, and they set off along Bataan's dirt and gravel coastal road, heading northwest for three miles. Just before reaching the Batalan River Bridge, Ramsey assembled 1st Platoon and headed down a trail that seemed to have been the main entrance to the village. Platoons 2 and 3, led by Wheeler and another officer, followed at a distance. Upon reaching the village outskirts, Ramsey dispersed 1st Platoon among the trails and foliage on Moran's edge, likely along the southeastern side, so the bottom right slant of the square we've been imagining. He sent four Filipino scouts, including Private Pedro Yuperio, into Moran on reconnaissance. The four men encountered and engaged an advanced guard of Japanese troops. The scouts, with Yuperio wounded, galloped back to Ramsey who sent Iperio and a corporal back down the trail to inform Wheeler, who was still behind. Ramsey told Iperio, who he thought wouldn't survive the next hour, to stay behind and undercover. 
Then Ramsey lined up his platoon and charged into Moran. Decades later, when Ramsey was in his 80s or 90s, he described the situation to a live audience. I immediately went into The cavalrymen and their horses charged forward as one, laying nearly prone, that is, face down, across their horses' necks, firing their weapons, throwing grenades, and screaming to wake the dead. The charge itself killed a number of Japanese, who were run down and trampled by the galloping horses. Others scattered into the heavy jungle on the village's eastern side. Some hid in the raised nipa huts. Some fled into the creek and swamp area next to the beach along the China Sea. Those closest to the Batalon River on the northwestern side turned tail and splashed back across the river. Here's Ramsey again. That forced the ones that were still crossing the river going into the village. What we hit was the advance guard of a uh, probably a regiment of Japanese who were coming across the Batolan River. So what I hit was the advance guard there, forcing the rest of them to withdraw back or were disposed and lost in the, uh, the area down near, on the way to, nearby to the um, the China Sea, this was on the China Sea side as, as Moron is. Once the Japanese soldiers had gotten to the other side of the Batalon River, they hid behind trees and returned fire. When Ramsey's charge reached the coastal creek, he ordered the platoon to dismount and fight on foot. Troopers grabbed their rifles, dismounted, then slapped their horses' hindquarters to get them to flee to the rear. Some of the horses bolted, however, and were milling around the village as the battle ensued. Once dismounted, Ramsey deployed his platoon, while simultaneously shooting a Thompson submachine gun at enemy forces. He sent some troops to the Batalon River to counter fire at the Japanese on the other side. Platoons 2 and 3 arrived just after the charge. Lieutenant Elisio Malari, with Platoon 2, ordered his men to the river. He later recalled, we joined the men on the river line under heavy Jap fire from the other side. The Japs still crossing through the water were sitting ducks, but the fire from the Japs in the jungle on the north side was murder. Ramsey's charge had a heavy psychological effect on the Japs, and now our dismounted troopers were putting out very disciplined fire. The value of constant training of the regiment was really evident, and we were holding the enemy again to a standstill. It was an impressive achievement because Troop EF was greatly outnumbered by Japanese forces who were coming at them from two directions, the Batalon River and the coastal creek slash beach area. Platoon 3 got information to counter the Japanese reinforcements coming from the beach area, who were trying to get back into Moran. And they weren't just reinforcements. The main body of the Japanese unit had arrived and was trying to get into town. Ramsey led some of 1st platoon from hut to hut seeking out Japanese snipers who hid in the huts during the charge. Their gunfire ripped the bamboo and thatch huts to shreds. 
The 26th Cavalry was caught in a crossfire of Japanese bullets coming from across the Batalon River and from the coastal Creek Beach area. On top of that, the Japanese were shelling them with mortars. Mortars are a type of gun that fires shells, that's bombs, at high angles. It was a hellish situation, to say the least. At some point during the battle, Ramsey took shelter by the church in the village's middle. About six feet away from him was a still-mounted cavalryman. A mortar hit next to the horse, which reared up on its hindquarters, screaming, then collapsed down on its haunches, dead as it settled on the ground. The rider was somehow still alive and fighting. The troubling scene was imprinted in Ramsey's mind for the rest of his life. Nearby, a Filipino private was hit by a sniper as he dismounted. Another private picked him up and carried him, leading his horse to the squad leader, but the first private was beyond help. Ramsey, still by the church, caught sight of the wounded Private Uperio, who was supposed to have stayed behind at the rear, but instead came back to Moran with Wheeler. The young private was staggering and weaving from shock, weakness, and loss of blood. What the hell are you doing here? Ramsey said to the very wounded private, who responded, Sir, I cannot go back. I'm still on guard. Then, Uperio collapsed. Ramsey laid the private against the church, where he remained until battle's end. Ramsey then saw an American officer cowering against the church, hiding from bullets and shelling. You yellow son of a bitch, get the hell over here and fight! Ramsey yelled at him. Standing nearby, Johnny Wheeler thought Ramsey was yelling at him, so the mild manner Wheeler set out to prove he wasn't a coward. He later told Ramsey, I damn near got shot because of you. When you yelled at that guy, I thought you were yelling at me, that I was yellow. I got so damn mad, I ran all over the place, trying to get myself shot at, just to prove you wrong. As the battle slowed, Ramsey and Wheeler found themselves near each other. Wheeler yelled to Ramsey, Ed, you've got blood on your left leg in case you didn't know it. A piece of shrapnel had embedded itself in the fleshy part of Ramsey's knee. Looking down and then to Wheeler, Ramsey replied, Look who's talking, Johnny. What the hell's that leaking out of your boot? A bullet had pierced Wheeler's boot and gone into his leg, although, thankfully, not hitting bone. Both soldiers were so full of adrenaline that they didn't realize they'd been hit. Both men were covered in blood and dirt. They were so dehydrated that their tongues literally stuck to the roofs of their mouths. And Ramsey discovered the crotch of his pants was wet, but not with sweat. He later explained, Now I finally knew the real meaning of the expression, getting the piss scared out of you. The worst times always came before a fight started. Once the shooting started, I was too busy to worry about it, and the feat itself became kind of an anesthetic. Although greatly outnumbered, the 26th Cavalry's Troop EF held the village and did not let the Japanese cross the river or advance from the beach. They finally cleared the village of Japanese forces by the afternoon and were eventually relieved by the Philippine Army 1st Infantry and ordered to withdraw. Someone likely medics with stretchers, carried the wounded, but still alive, Private Pedro Uperio to the rear. When Ramsey had first seen the young man's wounds, he thought Uperio was a dead man. But the private would recover and survive the war. Ramsey cited Uperio for the Distinguished Service Cross, the Army's second highest honor. He received the medal after liberation in 1945. The 26th lost only two troopers that day, with six men wounded and several horses lost. By contrast, the Japanese suffered scores of wounded and killed men. 
Three Japanese were captured, a shameful circumstance to servicemen so ingrained in the Bushido discipline. Bushido, or Way of the Warrior, was the samurai code of conduct in pre-modern Japan. It became a basis for countrywide ethical training in the mid-1800s. By World War II, the tenets of this philosophy included loyalty, self-sacrifice, and absolute subservience to the emperor. It touted several virtues, including honesty and honor. An early 20th century Japanese writer described honesty as, When warriors say they will perform an action, it is as good as done. Nothing will stop them from completing what they say they will do. They do not have to give their word. They do not have to promise. Speaking and doing are the same action. He described honor as, Warriors have only one judge of honor and character, and this is themselves. Decisions they make and how these decisions are carried out are a reflection of who they truly are. You cannot hide from yourself. Taken together and indoctrinated so fully into the Japanese military culture, I can see why a captured Japanese soldier would prefer death to imprisonment. He said he would complete a job, but he didn't achieve it. Therefore, honor dictates he should die rather than being dishonored through capture. American and Filipino servicemen did not hold to the same belief, and the divergent values would lead to very dire circumstances for POWs in a few short months. At the end of the Battle of Moron, one wounded Japanese survivor lay by two dead comrades near the church. Captain Wheeler tried to give the wounded man water from Wheeler's own canteen, but the soldier instead motioned for Wheeler to kill him with a bayonet instead of giving him water. Wheeler, of course, didn't kill the man. Filipino soldiers were ordered to take the three Japanese POWs on stretchers to the rear, but the Japanese never made it, likely killed by their Filipino transports who were very angry with the Japanese. Wheeler, Ramsey, and the rest of Troop EF returned to their Biovac area. A Biovac is a temporary camp for soldiers. It doesn't usually have tents or covers. They drank water, ate a bit of food, and collapsed onto their bedrolls. The Battle of Moran began to solidify and deepen the sense of abandonment and betrayal that Ramsey and Wheeler felt. MacArthur had been promising reinforcements since the war began about six weeks earlier, but none had come. Morale and hope steadily declined as the days and weeks without additional support went on. These feelings were only bolstered by some of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's statements to the American people, including this in his January 6, 1942 State of the Union Address given 10 days before the battle at Moran. In fulfilling my duty to report upon the State of the Union, I am proud to say to you that the spirit of the American people was never higher than it is today. The Union was never more closely knit together and this country was never more deeply determined to face the solemn tasks before it. The response of the American people has been instantaneous and it will be sustained until our security is assured. <laughs> Admittedly, we have been faced with hard choices. It was bitter, for example, not to be able to relieve 
the heroic and historic defenders of Wake Island. It was bitter for us not to be able to land a million men in a thousand ships in the Philippine Islands. But this adds only to our determination to see to it that the stars and stripes will fly again over Wake and Guam. Yes, see to it that the brave people of the Philippines will be rid of Japanese imperialism and will live in freedom and security and independence. <laughs> Powerful and offensive actions must and will be taken in proper time. So, in other words, those promised reinforcements weren't actually coming. Despite Troop EF's success at Moran, it became apparent that a horse-mounted cavalry wasn't practical for the hilly, jungle terrain of Bataan. Plus, food was running low, very low, for both servicemen and horses. So just a few days after Moran, General Wainwright ordered all of the 26 cavalry's horses and mules to be sent to the military base at Maravellas on the southern tip of Bataan to be slaughtered and used for meat for the soldiers all over Bataan. It was an awful order, one that makes me cringe in disgust and sadness. But perhaps it was also compassionate because the lack of foraging food available for the horses meant it was highly likely they would soon die of starvation. The 26 cavalry's battle-hardened troopers cried as they hugged their mounts' necks and said goodbye to the horses that they had bonded with long before the bloody, hard weeks of war. A dozen cavalry men led the 251 horses and 48 pack mules south to Maravellas. When time came for the actual slaughtering, General Wainwright, a former cavalryman himself, ordered that his personal beloved horse, Joseph Comrade, be the first horse killed. But out of loyalty and respect to their horses, none of the 26 cavalry men ever ate any of the horse meat. Instead, they foraged to get whatever meat, be it caraboa, monkey, fowl, snake, or rodent that they could find. This final dismounting was not only an end of the 26th Cavalry, it was the end of the last combat operational horse-mounted regiment. In short, it ended America's horse cavalry as a fighting force. In the days right after the Moran battle, Ed Ramsey was sent to Field Hospital No. 2 for jaundice. As I've researched jaundice in adults, it could be a sign of severe dehydration, hepatitis, or even yellow fever. I don't, however, have details about his specific condition beyond jaundice. Johnny Wheeler's leg wound became worse, and he was sent to hospital too as well, where he told Ramsey about the horses being slaughtered. After a moment of sadness, Ramsey said, Well, I guess it was inevitable. The poor devils were nothing but skin and bone. Wheeler then continued, I thought you should know that they put you in for the Silver Star. Who? You remember that officer you called a yellow son of a bitch in front of the church at Moran? Well, that just happened to be Wainwright's chief of staff. He wasn't shirking. he just come up to report on the action. Well, he's the one who recommended you. A little surprised, Ramsey thought for a moment, then responded, Well, I guess that makes me the first soldier who ever got a medal for cussing out a staff officer. And now look who's yellow. Wheeler joked, referring to Ed's jaundice. 
The doctors at Hospital 2 determined that Wheeler's wound was bad enough that he needed to be sent to Hospital Number 1 near Marivellas. I use the word hospital here very loosely. They were field hospitals, with some areas not even having roofs. I'm going to go into details of these Bataan hospitals in a future episode. Stationed at Hospital Number 1 when Wheeler arrived was the pretty red-haired nurse Juanita Redmond, who he'd been interested in before the war. Although the handsome young captain was assigned to another nurse's care, Nurse Redmond found her way to Johnny's hospital bed whenever offered the chance. So, in between air raids, bombings, and attending to other wounded and sick men. When Johnny was finally able to walk, he and Juanita stole some private moments together in the forest around the hospital, at the base of Mount Baton. Now, I'm a romantic. I love me a good romance. So here is where I want to put a golden glow on this image of an army nurse in a pristine white uniform and a wounded but brave captain walking arm in arm through the tropical jungle against the backdrop of a far off war. But I can't, as much as I want to, I just can't. Because even though the hospital was as far away from the Bataan front as it could be, the hospital was in an awful active war zone. Nurse Redmond had given up her white uniform for baggy beige mechanics overalls, so she would be camouflaged in the forests surrounding the hospital. All too soon, Johnny Wheeler was deemed fit for duty and ordered back to the Bataan front. Juanita Redmond watched him climb into a jeep and drive off, returning to the hell that was Bataan's front lines. It was probably the last time she ever saw him. Nurse Redmond was lucky enough to escape to Australia before the Philippines fell to Japanese forces. But we're going to see her appear in a few future episodes before she escapes the horror of Bataan. Johnny Wheeler was captured by Japanese forces two and a half months later when Bataan fell. He endured the Bataan death march and ended up in the Cabanatuan POW camps. Almost three years later, in December 1944, he was loaded onto the hellship Oroku Maru along with Frank Pisic and Ralph Brown from episodes one and three. They were headed for work camps in Japan. The Oroku Maru was bombed by a U.S. plane near Olongapo Navy Yard, which was not far from Moran on Bataan. But most of the POWs were able to escape the sinking ship and swim to shore. Several newspaper reports from the 1940s say that Captain Johnny Wheeler did not make it to shore that day. However, official military records say that he did survive that shipwreck, only to be put on another ship that was bombed in a harbor in present-day Taiwan. He is said to have been wounded but not killed in that second bombing and placed on a third hell ship bound for Moji, Japan. But, the official reports say, he succumbed to his injuries on January 26, 1945, while the ship was at sea. He was 29 years old. The Orokomaru disaster is one of the major war crimes of World War II, and I will detail this in a future episode. Ed Ramsey escaped from the Bataan Death March and joined guerrilla organizations hiding in the Luzon wilds and fighting against the occupying Japanese forces for the rest of the war. At one point, the young officer had 40,000 men under his command. You can learn more about Ed Ramsey's specific experiences in his autobiography, Lieutenant Ramsey's War, published in 1990. Ramsey left the U.S. Army in 1946 at rank of lieutenant colonel and went to law school at the University of Oklahoma. He went to work at companies in Japan, Taiwan, and the Philippines. Edwin Ramsey passed away March 7, 2013, age 95. Filipino private Pedro Yuperio recovered from his wounds and survived the Bataan Death March. 
After the war, he remained in the U.S. Army for several years. He had been promoted to the rank of sergeant when he visited the United States for the first time in October 1949 for training at Fort Benning in Georgia. En route, he and seven other Filipino U.S. Army servicemen told a reporter their impressions of the states. Sergeant Uperio stated, Manila is a country town compared with American cities. He planned to move with his wife and children to the states at some point. There's a picture of him in the newspaper article. It's on my website, but the quality is very bad. You can see only his eyes. Still, it's the only photo I've actually found of this courageous man. Similarly, I've had a difficult time finding sources about Pedro Uperio's life. But he may have indeed moved to the U.S. and lived in Mesquite, Texas. But that's all I know about him. While the army was fighting on the ground in Bataan, my great-grandfather, Al-Masam, was stationed on the USS Canopus, which was anchored in the bay at Maravellas on the southern tip of Bataan. And despite the old ship's age and the fact that it wasn't a warship, it would prove to be very important in the American struggle to defend Bataan. More on that next week. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Johnny Wheeler, Ed Ramsey, and Pedro Uperio on my website. The link is in the show description. If you'd like to know more about the 26th Cavalry during World War II, I suggest the book The Doomed Horse Soldiers of Bataan by Raymond G. Wolfe Jr. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. Reviews help others find this podcast so I can keep telling these amazing stories. Left Behind is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Paul Sutherland, Tyler Harmon, Connor Davis, and Mike Davis. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken. I'll be back next week with the first bombings on the ship where my great-grandfather was stationed.